You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Episode 42 of Sprogcast is supporting Baby Loss Awareness Week, which takes place from the 9th to the 15th of October. Our interviews today are with two authors releasing books on this subject. Mel Scott talks about the loss of her son Finley and her book Finley's Footprints, and Petra Boynton discusses her experience and her research, which she has combined into her new book, Coping with Pregnancy Loss. I'm Karen Hall, and he's Mark Harris. Hello. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction at pinterandmartin.com. They generously offer a 10% discount to customers using the Sprogcast code at checkout. So get your books ready for the start of the term. Are you? Su- are we suggesting there that people are going to have more time to read because the children are back at school? We could be suggesting that, or we could be suggesting people are beginning their midwifery and other training. Oh yeah, oh yeah, good luck. And might want their textbooks. Oh There's yeah, certainly a couple of Pinter and Martin titles on the NCT degree reading list. Uh, what What are they? Oh, now you're asking me a question. Ah. <laughs> and you're an assessor. I'm a tutor. Oh, and. The most exciting thing happened at induction. Go on. We went to the um, university induction last week. Uh, I think it was last week. All the days are running into one another at the moment. Um, And one of the new students approached me and said that she listens to Sprogcast and she likes it. And it has influenced her in choosing to do the NCT Birth and Beyond degree. Wow, that's cool. Your, your NCT colleagues should, should take note. I was so just awed by her that I didn't ask her name. I feel really bad about it. <laughs> if you're listening, do get in touch via the page. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And and support us on Patreon, for goodness sake. Yes, we're now collecting sponsorship at patreon.com slash broadcast, where you can sign up for badges, T-shirts and other exciting rewards. Hey, look! I've got I've got hundreds of t-shirts. Yes, sign yeah. up for them in, in my garage. You must have an entire <laughs> garage full. It must look like a sale. I have got a lot. I have got a lot, and uh, you know we're very grateful for those that have uh, supported us already. Uh, but we want more of you to do it. Frankly, do you want to know what I did with the white one that you sent me? Yeah, go on. And there are no photographs of this, but um, no. Pete has just joined an eighties band. He's the bass player in a band that does eighties covers, and. For his first gig with them, I used it to create a, a Bananarama type outfit with the kind oh. of slashed sleeves and collar. Oh, very nice. Very nice. We need pictures of that. There are none. No pictures. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Now, the, the page is up and running. You know, I, I, Dennis Walsh's interview is up there at the moment. Um, that's an hour and a half of me in his front room talking about his life, his family, his research. So check that out. And coming soon is a, a longer videoed interview with Mel to follow up on her interview today that we're going to be broadcasting. Okay, wonderful. Amy Brown's positive breastfeeding book was launched on the 21st of September. We've had a sneak peek at that, haven't we? We have. What do you think? I really liked it. There's a lot in it. 
So when you say there's a lot in it, so it's not the kind of book you pick up and read all the way through? Um, well, I did, but that might just be me. But I think it's useful, it's really useful as a textbook. So def- definitely one for the students. Is, um, is, it, is it well indexed? I, do you know what? I had a proof copy and um, uh. it didn't have its indexes or references, but I assume that those will appear in the real thing. She's an academic, I, you know... I'd hope she had insisted upon it. Yeah. Because if it's going to be useful as a sort of like a reference uh, book, it certainly needs a good index, don't if it? If it wants to be on academic reading lists, it's going to need references. Yeah. Yeah. So te- impressions. I mean, yeah, when it comes to breastfeeding books, I remember not that long ago, although we've been doing this for ages, I asked you for the best book on breastfeeding and you said... Heather Welford's Successful Infant Feeding, which is out of print but available secondhand in various places. Yeah, and we should maybe post that to the page because I bought that on your recommendation and found it very helpful. Does this book by Amy supersede that in your recommendations? No. Ah, (laughs) Sorry, Amy. Hey, look, we're an independent uh, podcast. We say what we mean and... uh, you know so why it's it's a great book i have nothing no problem at all with the book it's not the um same as successful infant feeding which is um perhaps a little bit more parent friendly more sort of um accessible it's not got as much detail in it um but i think that for parents who want to read that little bit more and be more prepared it would be really really good um i just feel like it might not be the first one that people right, would pick I, up but maybe I they will that. because it's got the positive birth book association because obviously the, right. the covers are exactly the same yeah they are aren't they i noticed that and um yeah I, if i'm honest i've dipped into it not read much in fact i'm a, I'm a bit in awe of you you know how you can i mean breastfeeding you're a breastfeeding specialist uh it's fair to say and uh, sitting down and reading a breastfeeding book. How do you do that? Well, I just do. I just sit there. Yeah, I, 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 see? Yeah, no, I know. I know. You read from left to right and all yeah. the rest of it. But but uh, how much did you find in it that was new? Oh, I wouldn't say a huge amount. No, but that no, that was not on. a fair judgment of it. No, no, I'm not suggesting that. Um, but when I'm reading a book about birth or breastfeeding, I'm looking for a new approach to what is predominantly the same material well i think the fact that it's been put out under the same branding as the positive birth book is is the approach because that's obviously a really popular book yeah i got that but does the contents reflect a similar layout and ethos then Uh, not layout wise but ethos yes um and it's obviously it's all evidence-based information there wasn't anything there were no lactation cookies in sight which is always pleasing (laughs) to me um and if if because of that branding, it's the book that parents pick up, that would be brilliant. Yeah, no, I get that. And, get and that. it's going to be new for them, isn't it? It's going to, Every parent picking up a book that, about breastfeeding surely hasn't read all the books like I have. So no. that's not true. I haven't read all the books. No. I'm uh, trying to. I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's still interesting that the the other book you mentioned would still be your first port of call for for a parent looking to start to explore yeah. breastfeeding, understanding, and knowledge. I think that would be the the entry level book, um, Heather Welford's book. But also, I still would recommend Emma Pickett's "You've Got It in You." 
Okay, I know Emma Pickett. She's the chair of the ABM. That's right. That's right. So, so we're, we're saying this is a book worth looking at. Certainly, if you're a student midwife, aspiring student midwife, maybe a doula that want to expand their knowledge. Definitely. Um, this is a book to get because it's so thoroughly evidence based, and I really like that. Well, well, you wouldn't expect anything less from Amy, would you? No, you wouldn't. I mean, she's pr- probably uh, one of the leading uh, spokespeople in the context of lactation and breastfeeding, isn't she? You'd like to think so, but apparently ITV don't agree. Really? Say more about that. I believe that um, a a lady called Claire Byam Cook was on this morning again yesterday, um, promoting herself and her book and um, giving some fairly non-evidence-based information about breastfeeding. I assume we can say all of that without being sued, because that is what happened. Wow. Who cares? Sue us. We got nothing. You can have the T-shirts. I love that. Yeah, they can have the t-shirts. Anyway, Karen, uh, how are you? I think I've witted on enough, Mark. How are you? Oh, have you? Have right. Well, I'm all right. <laughs> well, I, I get used to your wittering. Um, I'm all right. It, it, like we said last episode, it's a time of transition for me. Some important decisions that I've made. You know, one is that the birth preparation training... Uh, for men really you know preparing uh, to be really present for birth and the early days of, of pregnancy having been on sale for 97 pounds for two years it's now free so anyone uh, who you think would benefit from doing the training six modules uh, in videos with loads of ebooks and all that kind of stuff you can get it for free and it's not a marketing ploy karen that's brilliant where's it found www.birthingforblokes.com and if you follow the link all the way through to checkout and use capital free uh, you can get the whole whole training for free fabulous tell your friends and uh, it's gonna stay free um so there you go that's great because you put a lot of work into that loads of work uh probably uh, eight months in development yeah, just decided that I was getting a lot of feedback. I get, I get monthly emails from men who have benefited from it and uh, decided it, it needs to be out there for free. And I've done it. So that marks a change in the things that I'm doing. Uh, birthing awareness training is now live, you know, that offers the uh, two day rewind process training and other things. So I'm, I'm keeping busy. And how's the publishing business? Good. Yeah, we've uh, obviously Mel's book is published already, but being launched in Baby Loss Awareness Week. That's Mel Scott, and the book is called Finley's Footprints. Yeah, that's the first book of Birthing Awareness. And where can people get that? They can get that from every place that sells books online. They could walk into a shop and order it. Uh, it's not on many shelves, uh, to be frank, but you can order it uh, from any bookshop. Uh, and you can get it from Amazon, World Books, anywhere you like. And maybe more importantly, you can get it direct directly from Mel. Ordering it directly from Mel is probably the best way to get it for Mel. Okay, so then we'll put something on um, on Facebook to guide people to do that. I will check in with Mel to, to make sure that her site is up. And it will be on birthingawareness.com. Uh, there will be a link on there shortly, but there isn't at the moment. Okay, so this might be a great time to listen to her interview. Bring it on. 
I'm talking to Mel Scott, author of Finley's Footprints, which is a book about stillbirth and it's available already. She'll tell you about where you can get hold of it from. And we wanted to talk to you, Mel, hi, about your book and why you've written it and what you think is important. Hi, Karen. It's quite a long story as to how the book came about. Okay. Um, so I will I will share it with you. I apologise if I get emotional because it's a bit of an emotional time of year for us all. Um, sure but you'll hear is, about yeah. that in a minute. To give you a bit of a background to where the book comes from, really, I'll have to take you back into my journey towards motherhood. Um, so I lost a baby in 2008 at eight weeks. I had a missed miscarriage. Um, and then we were very fortunate we got pregnant quite quickly again um, and that baby was born in 2009. I had uh, no problems at all through my pregnancy. Um, I was one of these first-time mums that read everything, planned everything, turned up at hospital with you know, four pages of a birth plan, <laughs> hoped for a, um, a gentle water birth, looked after myself really well through pregnancy had a fantastic community midwife and there was some funding available at the time which was for healthy pregnancies and you have reiki and reflexology and pregnancy a healthy diet looking after myself eating drinking as i should not doing all the things that i shouldn't um and after we got past 12 weeks obviously we relaxed and no, we had it hadn't even occurred to us that anything would go wrong at the other end of pregnancy um so we had a had a sweep at 39 weeks had acupuncture and reflexology um and nothing happened we waited and waited and eventually we got to 41 plus 4 and i reluctantly agreed to an induction at 42 weeks um, and I thought my waters had gone. It wasn't a big gush. It didn't go as it happens in the movies. Um, it, I, I just thought, oh, something feels a bit different. So because of the gestation I was, the hospital said to, to come on into the birth centre and, and they'd check me over. Um, so we drove into hospital and, and by the time I arrived at the hospital, there was um, meconium in my waters. Um, so there was various discussions that took place between the midwives on the birth centre and the midwives on the labour ward to decide what this meconium meant. They, they did offer me an induction at that point, but nobody at any point said to me there was any reason for concern. So I was still in the mindset that I wanted a water birth and I knew induction would prevent me having a water birth. So I said no to the induction. Um, they took me onto the labour ward and, and did a CTG test. Um, and at that point, the baby's heart rate was fine. I was okay. We later found out that trace was suspicious, so it didn't have any accelerations on it. But the midwife didn't notice that at the time, so I didn't see a consultant. Um, and at the time, they weren't using fresh eyes or any kind of risk assessment around CTGs in our hospital. Um, so I was not in labour, I was not dilating and I was not contracting but because of the meconium they wanted to keep me in um, and they suggested another period of monitoring four hours later. After about three hours I was not coping with my anxiety even though I had hypnobirthing CDs that I was listening to there was something that I was kind of getting worried about and after three hours the meconium got worse 
Um, so I asked to go back on the monitor. And at the point they put me on the monitor, I was on the antenatal ward. My husband had gone home at that point because I wasn't in labour. And the uh, um, when they as soon as almost as soon as they put me on the CTG, they got it set up and then went away because it was night time and they I was on the antenatal ward, so they were quite busy. And I called the the midwife back to say that his heart rate had dropped. Um, slight background in medical training. So I knew what the numbers meant, even if I wasn't sure what was going on. His heart rate dropped three or four times over the next couple of hours. Um, they called a doctor. The doctor was busy in theatre. Labour ward was full. And eventually, the, when the doctor came, it actually happened that Finley's heart rate dropped while the doctor was there. So they, they took me through for an emergency caesarean because the heart rate didn't come back up. Um, so my, my last memory at that point, apart from photographs and what people have told me later, was, was just going under for the general anaesthetic, so having a mask over my face. Um, and I think at that point I knew something was wrong, although it had all happened very suddenly. And, and my next memory really is that w- waking up and meeting Finley and being told that we, we'd had a little baby boy, but he didn't survive. Um, my husband obviously arrived back at the hospital to find out that I'd had surgery um, to find out that we had a little boy. Um, and while I was recovering from the, from the anaesthetic, he was supported to bath Finley um, to get him dressed and then to make phone calls to call friends and family who came in to visit us over the course of that day. Um, most of my memories from this time come from the photographs. So we were very fortunate that the staff suggested taking photographs. Um, and we've got lots of photos from that first day of, of fin- Finley being bathed and, and dressed and various people holding him and a photograph of the three of us together. We spent three days in hospital with Finley. He stayed with us the whole time. This was kind of before cold cots and cuddle cots became as popular as they are now. So we didn't have one of those. But because he died just before being born, he didn't go through the changes happened but they happened very slowly to his body so he was able to stay in the room with us we stayed in a bereavement suite together and my husband was able to stay with us yeah so the the book materialized out of those three days really and I realized on leaving the hospital I didn't know what to do or how to behave or what would help because not only had I now got to get used to being a mum I had to get used to being a mum when my baby wasn't alive um, and as much as the pregnancy books gear you up for how to look after a newborn baby there's not one kind of guidebook that tells you how to deal with that situation and um, so we we got through the three days in hospital by just following what the staff were suggesting to us and it seemed like every m- midwife that we met over those three days had different ideas so you know, they, they suggested that we bring in clothes. Someone suggested that we did hand and footprint casts. Um, we had him blessed. And we've got lots of footage and video um, and photographs from that time. Um, but when we left hospital, it was, it was really hard to know how to navigate the life that we now had. So writing became one of the things that I put into place to help help myself with that Uh, and I just started writing the day after we arrived home um, and that that became the book really so the the book is set up to be an entry from each day of our 
time after we had Finley, right up until four months later when we got the post-mortem results because it, 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 there wasn't really an obvious point to end it, but that seemed like a, a point where we got some closure and were able to, to move on to in, into our new life. So the book starts on day five. It goes through how we plan the funeral. Um, it has lots of notes that I wrote to Finley. So one of the things that I found really hard was not being able to express how I felt, um, not having all this love and all these feelings and all these things that we wanted to do together, but not being able to actually do them. Yeah. So the, the book is in part an expression of my love to Finley, um, but it's also a, a really useful record of the things that we did to build a new normality. So you started writing it for yourself to heal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then after after the funeral, really, I started sharing some of the posts on Facebook and people, other people started to find them that have been through similar experiences and it seemed to be helpful to them. Um, so it, with, within three months, I decided that it needed to be shared. Um, and we, I, I initially had it edited and then self-published it, but it became really hard to market it as we moved on and I didn't want to kind of continuously be back in that space um and then the opportunity came up that I met Mark on on Facebook and the opportunity came up to have the book published um which is great because it, it's I'm kind of nine, nine years on now from our loss um in a different space um and it feels like it feels like the right time to publish a book about stillbirth because there's so many conversations going on in in politics and in parliament and so many changes with things like saving babies lives that the conversation is not as taboo as it once was yeah and you obviously over the like nine years you've really contributed to opening that up yeah I was thinking about that and, and it's been quite a time for reflection because there were some parts of the book that I, I wanted to revise because things have changed so much and I was thinking, even as I was talking to you about the things that happened to us through Finley's birth, some of those things have changed as well as a result of, well, in our hospital, as a result of what happened to Finley, they've put some changes into place, but also on a national level. Um, so in, in 2011, there was the, the Lancet did a, a series on stillbirth. And through that, I met Alexander Hazel, who's a, an obstetrician working in Manchester, who's also, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but he's also a grieving father who lost his own baby. And he's been absolutely instrumental in raising awareness and carrying out research projects. So there was a stillbirth priority setting partnership that took place in 2013 that I was invited to. That brought together professionals and parents and charities to try and shape the research that needed to take place into stillbirth. And some of those projects and those ideas that we came up with on that day are now starting to be published. So there's the Affirm trial, which came as a direct result of those conversations. Um, and then obviously in the last few years, there's been Saving Babies Lives has been released. And that's a four element bundle that well, there was no investment, but trusts were encouraged to take it up. And, and they've just reported actually um, 19 trusts, I think they've evaluated over the first year. Um, and they, those trusts have started seeing 20%, up to 20% reductions in the stillbirth rate, which is absolutely fantastic. Mm, yeah. But it feels really difficult as a as a parent because 
one of the most frustrating things is that we've known for a really long time that up to 50% of stillbirths are preventable. Um, and at the point that Finley died, nothing had changed on that stillbirth rate. It hadn't changed for decades. Um, and as a parent, it's really hard to sit there and think that professionals knew that things could be changed, but didn't believe that it was possible or didn't care enough or it was too complicated or there was not enough funding because the impact on my life hasn't just been the loss of a baby it's it's really interesting working in maternity services because they just see the glimpse of the devastation that happens at the time of the birth but actually what's happened over those nine years is that we've we've nearly lost our relationship we've lost friendships we've lost our support network we've lost jobs my husband couldn't hold down a job he found it really really difficult so he was expected to go back to work within two days I was still in hospital at that point he took um, managed to persuade them that he was entitled to the paternity leave so he took two weeks off but emotionally he hadn't received any support and he still hasn't received any support to explore his feelings Um, and he's really struggled to maintain employment we've had debt as a result of this Um, we've both had mental health problems we've both had time off work with depression and anxiety Um, and last year I was diagnosed with PTSD and that's eight years on from Finley's death I had finally had treatment for that it's really interesting that stillbirth is kind of set in maternity services but it actually affects mental health services it affects social care services It impacts on employment rates. The issues that come off the back of losing a baby are um, are massive. And I think those things are just starting to be recognised as well. It affects us on a a day-to-day basis. So we were were fortunate enough to go on to have another baby. We got pregnant very quickly. And Tony was born within a year, just over a year after Finley died. Um, And we've had to navigate what do we tell our daughter about her brother, you know we're still grieving while we were pregnant and while we were affected bonding with our new baby um so it's quite powerful releasing a book kind of on his ninth birthday and knowing that you know a whole stream of new people are going to be able to learn about my son even though he's not here his legacy is obviously going to be valuable to other people and there's been creating a business I've trained hundreds of midwives and shared my story with hundreds of midwives to try and improve uh, bereavement care I set up the butterfly awards in 2013 to give professionals recognition for the work that they're doing um, and to provide charities a platform for Uh, sharing the work that they're doing on a bigger scale and I set up my own charity as well which is supporting parents in the southwest who go through a similar experience and all of those things people are like how do you actually have time where do you fit all of this in it must take a lot of energy it it does but I, I guess it's the energy that would have gone into bringing up a little boy it's it's that gap in my life that it's, there's a thinly shaped hole and there always will be a thinly shaped hole in my life but this goes some way to to filling it and making it a bit more comfortable yeah you wanted to talk to me about um preventing stillbirth i do yeah it's 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 really interesting to sit here um as a as a parent because i i also work in mental health services so i understand 
how the NHS works. Um, and, and I sit firmly in the middle, really. I think that we should be doing everything that we can to prevent babies from dying where it's possible. Uh, and I think we're starting to see the consequences of being able to reduce the stillbirth rate. But there are lots of conversations going on about whether early induction is the right thing to do and how many babies should be going through the induction process because of reduced fetal movements and it's really difficult because when you sit from and look at it through the lens of someone who's been through such a massive life-changing event that there's no way I would sit here and say actually it's okay to put the mental health needs of a mum above the needs of her baby but then when my heart stops shouting at me, I can think, actually, it's really important that both mum and baby are well. We don't need to be talking about saving babies' lives or protecting natural birth. We need, we need to do both. We need to talk about saving the baby's lives where it's possible and protecting the mum's mental health and making sure that she has a peaceful birth that goes according to plan within the choices that she wants to make. And people ask me, like, what would have made a difference? What, what one thing would have made a difference to Finley's birth? And although there were issues with the CTG that we later found out, so it didn't seem like people were picking up the fact that there was meconium in my waters, so that was already a deviation from normal. His heart rate dropping in the absence of contracting and dilating was already a deviation from normal. The fact that I've been in hospital six or seven hours after my waters had broken but I still wasn't having any contractions or dilation should have been a cause for concern. The fact that I'm not really an anxious person and I was hypnobirthing and I work in mental health and I have I use mindfulness and I use meditation and I have all of these breathing exercises that I do and I was still feeling very very anxious when labour hadn't even started yet. The one thing that I think would have made a difference to me is isn't kind of extra technology in CTGs or it's it's one person staying with me from the start to the finish who would have recognised that this anxiety that was increasing wasn't normal for me, who would have known that his heart rate dropping wasn't because I was having a contraction or wasn't because I'd moved because they would have seen that I wasn't moving and I wasn't contracting. That was screaming out in my mind as well. Continuity of care would have made a difference. Yeah, it isn't okay that parents are still told. I still speak to people that are reporting that their baby hasn't moved and they're still told to wait for two hours or have a cold drink or have a shower. And they have to advocate for themselves to be treated with dignity and respect and for their concerns to be listened to. Yeah, you've made a difference. Thank you, Mel. Thank you for telling us about your book and thank you for telling us about Finley as well. You're welcome. So, according to SANS, oh, what does SANS stand for, Mark? I don't know. Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Society, yeah. I'm going to guess. Every day in the UK, around 15 babies die before, during or soon after birth, which means every 90 minutes a family is faced with the devastation of the death of their baby. In November 2017, then Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt stated that the government aimed to half the rates of stillbirth, neonatal and maternal deaths and brain injuries occurring during or soon after birth. God, that is staggering, isn't it? Why is it staggering? 15, 15 babies 
die before, during, or soon after birth. Wow. I, I just find that staggering. I, I think I was aware of it as a stat, but when when you hear it read like that, um, I don't know, took my breath away when I, when I read that in the script, Karen. You know, we, certainly those of us who are midwives, you know, and I've been a midwife a long time, and I can count on three fingers the amount of stillbirths I've actually been involved with as a midwife. Yeah. In 23 Good. years. Now, that, that, that's no reflection on my skills. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it. Th- these kind of incidents in the career of a midwife are very few and far between. Yeah. You know, and I would, you know, when I speak at conferences and stuff like that, one of my opening lines, apart from my corny joke about security you know is is that we come from a long line of effectively birthing women you know that has to be true right yeah because we're here (laughs) you know we're testament to the evolutionary power of the feminine to birth but that message certainly needs tempering by the kind of quote that you've just read yeah there is no place for complacency that's what that's what i'm saying i'm trying to work out how many babies are born each day in the uk okay so here it is um on the bbc about 2200 babies are born each day in the uk so that's 15 out of 2200 and that's why you haven't come across it very often yeah and, and all these things need you know placing in a much broader context don't they because we would be in danger of that whole rhetoric uh, which says we need to do everything we can to make sure that what we end up with is a healthy, alive baby. Yeah. And it's clear from listening to Mel that she felt that there were things that could have been done. Oh, definitely. There seems to be many families out there, well, the statistics speak for themselves, who feel that the level of care they received, you know, wasn't wasn't good. Yeah, Absolutely. And that's that came across from Petra's interview. So she was talking um, her, her books, um, not to say that Mel's isn't practical, but Mel's is very personal and Petra's is, is very practical. Yeah. Mel, Mel's is, is a personal journey. Yeah. And, and for me, the power in that is that that maybe people that have been through a, an experience that's similar uh, here someone else's experience and at the very least do not feel alone yeah i think that came from both of them actually yeah cool and we talked in i think all the way back in episode four about risk and it's a theme that has come up occasionally and about whether it is possible to balance the needs to reduce risk as far as you can and also not so over medicalize birth that it's no longer a human experience. I'm just not sure how you do it. I mean, that that's the challenge that I constantly feel when we have this discussion. How do you balance when both sides of the debate are making pretty, pretty good points, right? Yeah, because if you think about, I know that you were overwhelmed just now by the um, 15 per day, but... yeah. That's quite a tiny figure out of the 2,200 per day. But for each parent for whom that happens, that is 100% of their experience. And those two things can't be reconciled. 
No, they can't. And, you know, the parents, grandparents, siblings, extended family, communities, you know, 15 babies a day is having an enormous ripple effect, you know, across people's lives. Yeah, that really came across from Mel. So, so how do you how do you balance the I'm going to use the word agenda but you know I uh, that's not in any Machiavellian sense you know people have an agenda you know often that's yeah used as a pejorative term but how do you balance those focuses because you know we we would ha- we could have loads of people speaking on on our show here saying that you know the increase of ultrasound the increase of routine inductions of labor and and all of the rest of it all of that is having an impact on women's experience of birth itself but the other thing is how do you balance that need when government simply doesn't put its money where its mouth is because no. what we do know and this has come up many times before as well is the continuity of care makes a difference and mel's story shows that continuity of care would have made a difference to her yeah definitely even if it was just in a different a difference to how she felt at the end of what happened so should, should well, we sorry go on no go on shall we what listen to petra yeah let's do it so this is petra boynton and her book is coping with pregnancy loss and it's out now Okay, so our next guest is Dr. Petra Boynton, who is an agony aunt and a psychologist, returning to the show, having contributed to our episode on sex and relationships. Can you remember that far back, Petra? I can, yes, I can. (laughs) So thank you for coming back again. Um, And you've just written a book called Coping with Pregnancy Loss, and it's about to be published by Routledge, is that right? That's correct, yes. Um, So I want to ask you, first of all, why you decided to write this. Well, I hadn't planned it. I know quite a lot of people when they've experienced loss feel they want to do something and that feeling can come almost immediately after their loss and sometimes it's many years or months after um and I it wasn't a plan for me uh I I had losses and many many years passed but I started hearing from people talking about loss um through the advice column I was writing at the time, you know, it's a common topic, lots of us go through it. So people had questions about their losses. And then uh, I did some work with the Miscarriage Association uh, on a public information campaign uh, called Partners 2, which was looking at telling stories from partners of women who'd had miscarriages about how they coped. And that went towards sort of uh, cartoons and multimedia. And lots more stories came in through that. And then on the back of that, I started writing more articles about my own experiences because by then it felt like enough time had passed I could talk about it and something kept coming back to me which was that when I had my uh, miscarriages nobody really told me where I could get help Um, it it was more or less that a lot of the information I got in hospital was confusing and then it was like off you go and you have to find out for yourself and I thought well what if I just wrote a book that helped people think you're not alone right now, you can probably cope yourself, but if you can't, here are the good places to go to support you in the next steps of your journey. So that that's really how it happened. It was a sort of a gradual process. And that's exactly what your book does, isn't it? Because there are lists of, you can get help with this, you can talk to these people, you are so not alone. And it 
you know, it's in every chapter. Yes. There is help. And it's such an isolating experience because it isn't talked about, especially early on. Yes, I think particularly early on, it's not talked about because quite often either people have only just found out or they know about it, but they've kept it to themselves. You know, they haven't told people yet. So there's that dilemma of, you know, I didn't tell anybody I was pregnant, but now I've had a loss. So how do I tell them? you know, two things um, uh, that people feel very, very isolated. And it may be only them and their partner, or possibly a friend or family member that knows. So that there's that that trickiness there. And I think for later losses, people want to talk about it early and late losses, people may want to talk about it, but others around them just don't know how to handle it. And so I think, particularly from doing an advice column, you know, it's really signposting. That's all you're doing. It's showing people where they can go to get help uh, quickly and easily. And it's connecting them with others who've been through it. So, you know, if you can't talk to somebody in your immediate uh, friendship group or family, there's going to be somebody at a support group or online or on the phone who, who's been there who can reassure you that, yes, you aren't alone and the feelings you have are all very valid and, and very, very normal. Because I think that's also a worry that you have all these intense feelings and you just don't know whether it's OK or not. Yes, it's got a, a sense of normalising the, the grieving process. When you lo- lose a baby early on, that's almost ironically why you haven't told anybody is because you know that there's a chance of that happening, but it doesn't make it any less of a, a horrible shock when it happens. No, absolutely. And I think there's that. And then for people who lose it later, there's a lot they want to talk about and, and they often find people are very uncomfortable about it or they want to help, but they just don't know what to say. And as a consequence, they say nothing or sometimes they say what they think is going to be helpful but it's sort of platitudes and and one of the things I wanted to do was to give people a kind of a, a range of, of almost not a diagnostic but like a checklist of, of these are all the possible ways you might feel and more um, because there are sort of common experiences that people think well they might cry or they might feel very shocked or very numb but people may not expect to feel very angry or resentful or jealous of other people who are pregnant when they aren't or um, just feeling very confused or or exhausted you know that you just don't have the energy to get on with the day and that might hit you during or after the loss but it could be some while after that people suddenly find these feelings and they can't quite place well, why do I feel just so, you know, numb now? Why do I feel so angry now? Or why am I crying all the time? I don't, you know, there's there's all those sort of feelings to, to get through, along with the fact that we don't all go through or respond to pregnancy loss in the same way. So it's not like a kind of neat way of, of grieving or a neat way of reacting. Some people are, are incredibly shocked. It's a big trauma. Other people can become almost matter of fact and deal with it. It, it, it. There's all sorts of different ways of coping and there isn't the correct one. And I wanted to make people aware that, you know, just because they aren't responding like, say, a friend or a, a neighbour or someone on TV is doing doesn't make their way of reacting any less valid. That perhaps is one of the things that makes it difficult for people to respond as well in that you may, you may have expectations of how somebody would react and they're, they're not They they might feel different things than what you think they should be feeling. Yes. And I think with with real good intentions, friends and family may often uh, expect that you would, um, you know, well, why aren't you crying? Or, um, you know, shall we get you booked in with a therapist? And, And those things, you know, may not be the right thing for that person at that time or ever. Not everybody does cry. Some people cry a lot. It's it's really, um, you know, very varied. And I think particularly when you talk about partners, 
there's either that they're completely ignored or their responses are often um, criticised by by family. It's like, well, why are you upset? You know, you didn't go through the loss. You've got to be there to look after her. Stop, you know, pull yourself together. And that can be very destructive as well. Um, So I think this sort of sense of either that you, you have to grieve in a particular way or that, you know, if it goes on too long or it doesn't go on long enough that people feel that they can police you, as in, you know, why are you still upset about it? You know, pull yourself together or, oh, you don't seem that bothered. You know, all of these can feel quite intrusive observations um, if they happen, which is, again, why I think being able to find support groups or um, people talking about it on social media is just a way of thinking, actually, yeah, that's how I feel. I'm not on my own. Mm. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, how, how can health professionals be supportive do you think? Well, I, I think most health professionals want to be supportive. Um, and the, the good news is that a lot of the, the sort of bigger um, pregnancy loss and, and um, stillbirth charities, they are all working now through the um, bereavement care pathway with health providers to improve the way that healthcare is delivered in the UK, at least. Um, And that's thinking about more sort of compassionate care, clear explanations, giving people time to think about what their options are and explaining them clearly and not forcing decisions upon parents at a time of, of, of grief and crisis and trauma. So there are steps certainly in the right direction. But I, and I think also within that, a lot of the, the bigger charities um, and some individuals in the smaller charities are offering training for healthcare providers. So breaking bad news, how to talk to people about what's going on, how to be compassionate, how to deal with diversity. So, for example, you know, if you have uh, lesbian and bisexual parents to talk to them about what they, they might need, how you talk to very young parents uh, about their losses, uh, how you can just be compassionate where there's language difference or disabilities but what I've heard particularly from health professionals is they still don't feel supported enough to do that Um, quite often they find providing care quite difficult um, because obviously they're often trained up in their their clinical training to do the physical care but it's not just the physical care with this it's the emotional care it's the questions it's the real range of different emotions that people can be going through and it can turn on a sixpence from rage to crying to disbelief you know and they're processing all that and they're often not well supported and trained to do so so I think they can help by getting training by not just treating the physical and by being aware we all cope in different ways and being sort of quick enough to to respond and react to that without judgment i know one thing that that people complain about and i certainly had this is is being told we don't know um so very often when there is a loss um people don't know why it happened exactly uh they can't be sure if it will happen again but of course you want those answers it feels very dismissive it does and and it's i don't think it's meant to be i think sometimes it is dismissive um but i think quite often it's just a genuine they don't know but there is a way of saying that um it, you know it's one of those things just try again we don't know are not really helpful answers but they're given possibly in an attempt to be helpful so it's about framing any explanation in a way that is clear to the person 
in front of you based on their ability to understand you. And that might be about their language, their literacy, um, their learning needs. It might be about how upset they are in that moment. There may need to be more than one conversation. And I think for professionals not thinking they've got to deal with it themselves there are organizations really excellent ones and and hopefully we can list them all at the end who 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 people can go to and that includes health professionals going to for their training but also signposting again um you know i didn't really need the doctors during my losses to give me in-depth explanations but i could have done with them saying look when you go home phone this number or go on this website and they will be picking up the care now we've left you know we're, we're handing you over yeah, I think that kind of signposting support is available in so many other areas of healthcare. Yes. And it yes. should be automatic. Absolutely. Do you think that this should be talked about more antenatally, sort of before it even raises its ugly head? Should miscarriage and stillbirth and, and late miscarriage particularly be discussed by midwives at early booking in appointments, antenatal classes? My preference would be yes, but I think I'm mindful that everybody is different. But yes, I I think it would be good, personally, if there was a better way of raising this. Because I think for a lot of people, when you get pregnant, you know, either if it was planned or it wasn't, there's all that sort of energy and excitement or anticipation, maybe uncertainty. um, If you're not sure about wanting to be pregnant, there's all those sort of things going on. and, And you are... All of the information you will be given is assuming that you are going to go ahead and the pregnancy will continue fine. So it doesn't really talk to you about the fact that things can go wrong along the way. And so for a lot of people, you know, maybe the first time they find out their pregnancy isn't continuing, certainly this was the case for me, is when they go for their scan. Um, sometimes there are things beforehand with bleeding, but but sometimes it's, it's you know, much later where for a late loss you haven't, haven't felt the baby move. I think having information about monitoring your pregnancy, particularly if you've had losses before, how to reassure you because you're always going to be nervous throughout it, but monitoring your baby, counting kicks, looking out for symptoms and signs, being able to ask questions, but also even before you get to kind of seeing your midwife or, or, or the pregnancy information, again, you know, lots of the baby books that you'll read don't mention pregnancy loss. You know, they're, they're, that's just not in there. Or there might be like a small thing of, oh, well, you might have a pregnancy loss. But it's this idea that actually because it's so common, it would be good if we kind of knew that actually that, that might be part of the journey, as sad as it is, and to be preparing for that. However, that that's that's me. I like lots of information to prepare. I know some people would rather really not know, but what they would like is if a loss happens, that the care they get at that point is very good. So I, I guess it's about offering people the option you know, we, we'd like to talk with you about all the things that might happen. Uh, are you okay with that? And if so, here is some information. It's interesting because there is such a culture of risk and fear about pregnancy, about doing the wrong thing, about drinking the wrong amount of alcohol, about not playing the right Mozart into your belly. Um, but it's all based around kind of somehow optimising this perfect human being that you're growing and not about awareness of some of the things you need to look out for and simply the fact that not all pregnancies continue. Absolutely. And the point you just made there about, you know, all the things you have to do to 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 maintain this 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 pregnancy is why then very often people feel that it's their fault when they have a loss. And that's a really, really common thing. I've done it. I think probably anyone listening who's had a, a loss will recognize that 
if only I hadn't, you know, if only I hadn't gone out to that party, if only we hadn't had sex, if only I hadn't smoked, if only, you know, there's all these kind of things. And, and did I cause it? Was I to blame? You know, did I not want this enough? Did I not do the right things? And and even if you reassure people that actually this happens and no, you know, you, you didn't cause it, there's always going to be a part of you that's like, no matter what anybody tells you, you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And I think there's that whole, because that's that whole wanting a healthy pregnancy, and I can understand why we get given this advice, it does have that flip side of, well, you know, maybe you did do, maybe it's your fault. Guilt and parenthood hand in hand. Yeah, yes. And I, and I think we're really good actually now, or getting better at talking about guilt in parenthood for when you've had a baby, that people very often will talk about, you know, that they can't be a perfect parent and the pressure's to do that. But we don't talk about parenthood when you are parenting through loss. So when you are, you've you've lost, you've been pregnant, but you, you haven't continued with the pregnancy, that, that that is still your pregnancy journey and your baby and your experiences and the pressure to be perfect through that even is there, you know, that you have to grieve in the right way and you have to um, react in a particular way. You know, you, you can be upset, but you can't go off the rails completely. You know, you, you're supposed to have a seemly interval and then to try again. There's all these kind of, I suppose, moral assumptions or, or, or subtle pressures that even with a loss, you're still supposed to get it right. Mm. And, and we don't none of us do no and we do things as individuals yeah absolutely so you wanted to list some of the support organizations before we finish yes i mean so so there's the the miscarriage association there's tommy's there's sans there are smaller charities like the legacy of leo and the pinks and the blues um and i've got uh, online a, a kind of an archive of them which i can give a link for if you you want to that put would be that great up yes yeah, it's it actually, it's still to be made live. <laughs> that will have all of them, which is not just in the UK, because I think, you know, for people listening outside the UK, there are other places to, to go to. But, I mean, all of those, all of those organisations have not just useful fact sheets um, and, and useful information you can read, but a lot of them have um, helplines you can call, Quite a lot of them offer live chats, be that on Twitter or Facebook, where you can talk to either other people who've been through loss or professionals that can advise you. They offer training, as I said, for for health organisations and healthcare staff. And um, a lot of people, I think, now are using Instagram in interesting ways to either give advice or also to document their journeys of loss. So that might be where they've gone on to have children or for very often where they haven't. Um, and they're telling all sorts of different stories, which I think is important because one of the big problems I found, and again, it's why I really wanted to do the book, is that although this isn't talked about where it is discussed, particularly in mainstream media, it nearly is always accompanied by photos and case studies of attractive, young, uh, but not too young, able-bodied, straight and usually white people looking kind of sad. And that's not to denigrate against real case studies, because I know often people want to put their stories out there, but those are the sort of, they tend to be quite photogenic and, and a, a, attractive media stories. And that leaves those of us who don't fit into any of those stories left behind. So what I really wanted to say was that, you know, all of us can go through loss, and we all go through it in very different ways. And so a lot of these organisations, smaller charities, and individuals who are just out there sharing their stories are a really excellent place to find your group. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So that's 
Coping with Pregnancy Loss, and it's going to be out um, a few days after we release this episode. Yep. Thanks, Petra. Thank you very much. We haven't got much news, have we, Karen? It's not like there's nothing going on. I think we've just been both really busy, not paying an awful lot of attention to it. We do have the thing that's been going around Twitter. What's that? About um, Sophie Power, the ultra runner, who ran the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc 166 kilometres, which, you know, people do that, and it's amazing. But this is even more amazing because she was a currently breastfeeding mother who had to stop to feed and pump as she went. Still managed to do it in something like 43 and a half hours. Wow. Wow. Why would you run that far anyway? Let them know <laughs> run that far feeding. The closest I've been to running that far is I had an athlete's foot once. <laughs> I don't think that counts. <laughs> I mean, that is an amazing achievement. I, you know, I, I've noticed over the last month, I've been out and about, you know, shopping and stuff like that. Lots and lots. And it might be the fact that my brain has a filter for noticing uh, breastfeeding women but I've noticed a lot of women feeding in, in public in Leicestershire this last month but also we tend to be able to spot it in that to the unpracticed eye you can just look like someone's cuddling their baby that's true yeah true it's a good thing my my um daughter stepdaughter uh, had a had a baby fairly recently Tilly and uh, she was out breastfeeding and and someone gave her a card Oh, the little thank you for breastfeeding in public card. Yeah, how cool is that? She yeah. was really pumped. She was really pumped about it, I was going to say, but that's not appropriate. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was really chuffed. Yeah, I like those cards. It really made a difference to her. Do you know, as a man, I don't think I'd pass that kind of card to a woman. No, I you really wouldn't. You'd no, I wouldn't. yourself. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, thank you for breastfeeding in public. You definitely <laughs> yeah, no. the way you said it. You would not. What what's inspired you this month, Karen? Well, I think I was going to mention the student who spoke to me at induction, and I've um, already done that um, yeah, because well. I was so excited about it. <laughs> um, and I think I've just been so, so busy with my work that not much is getting through. New job. Yeah. I, that's inspired me. I've been just completely immersed in getting ready to do tutorials. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. It really is. And I had my first, my tutorial group is in Belfast. So well, I flew over on Sunday night and did my tutorial on Monday morning and then flew back. And it was oh, ace. <laughs> that's I'm, go, I'm going to Belfast. I know you are. They're talking about it. Uh, they're hoping, they? my students hoping to go. Really? Yeah, so say hi. To, to, yeah, well, I'm there the day before doing a, a day workshop. Um and then I'm speaking at the conference. So this is the Northern Ireland Positive Birth Conference, the first of its sort, which I think is it on the 27th of this yeah, month. Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah, I think so. If you're listening to this as it comes out, you've still got time to buy tickets for all our Northern Ireland listeners. Yeah, so you, you, you're inspired by your work, but you haven't had much time to do any, any other thinking otherwise. Not really, no. There's no space in my head at the moment. How about you? What's inspired you? So at the moment, I'm reading a book by Jack Hawley, H-A-W-L-E-Y. And it's The Bhagavad Gita, A Walkthrough for Westerners. And this is inspiring me. And I think 
at the moment the main reason uh, is an emphasis upon uh, how to work in such a way that 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 you detach that I detach from the fruit of the work so I'm focused on the work for its own sake without any attachment to end result uh, and I'm finding a lot of peace in that at the moment that sounds interesting and the, the thought of finding peace is very appealing uh, and I've read the Bhagavad Gita quite a few times but this one is um, focused on the subtitle is a walkthrough for Westerners uh, and I'm finding it very valuable at the moment Lovely. I found an interesting link, which I'll put on the page. Cool. I think that's all we've got time for today. Let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. And on our next episode, we're hoping to talk about doulas and with doulas. And we're also going to be mentioning Ellie Durant's book, New Walk, which is fiction from Pinter and Martin. Um, And as Mark mentioned, we've got an interview with with, um, Between You and Your Wife. This is becoming the, the Harris family sitcom it is a bit are you going to thank the patrons um am i going to thank the patrons i thank all of you lovely lovely patrons especially our newest patron fleur parker thank you Fleur. yay thank you fleur all right well you can find us at facebook that's facebook.com slash broadcast and at broadcast on twitter and if you're listening on itunes why not leave us a five-star review and don't forget patreon for goodness sake we we really would value we really do value the support of our patrons and are looking for more and we want to see photos of you in your broadcast badges and t-shirts thank you oh yes we do thanks for listening it's goodbye for me bye here's an idea we came up with after we finished recording the show today we'd like to make our christmas episode really interactive by inviting people to send in their questions for me and mark these can be about anything obviously it's got to be safe for work. Um, and we, you can send your questions in by um, messaging us through the Facebook page or direct message on Twitter. Or you can email an audio clip to Karen at motherworldly.com. I'll put that on the Facebook page so people can send us in their questions. We'd like to have some sound bites as well as um, written questions. And that would be great. Thank you. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.